So I, uh, I think uh, lists, uh, some lists, I think you would think this too, you know, lists like grocery lists or the list for your mechanic when you take your car in for service, they, they can be awfully boring, right? I mean, when was the last time you sat down and just wanted to read through your grocery list, right? Uh, they can also be depressing, um, like when my wife gives me that honeydew list and I wonder just when I'm going to be able to find the time to do all of it. <laughs> but sometimes lists can be a lot of fun, right? Uh, I think it might be fun to sit down and and list all the special features that you would like in your dream home. One of those for me would be a drive-through garage. You, you know, a door on each side so so that you would drive in one door and never have to back up. You would just pull out the other door. And for Anne, they would have openers so she wouldn't always have to be getting in and out of the car to close those doors. And I, I think that would be a lot of fun, don't you? Or maybe you would enjoy making a list of things you want to do on your vacation. I mean, besides the honeydew list, which often gets done on vacation. You know, the fun things that you want to do, to go swimming or go hiking or ride a bike or eat out a lot. <laughs> Some lists may only be imaginary. I probably never will build a dream home. Other lists really can happen, and although you might not complete everything on the list in one setting, you might get some of them done on a vacation. And there are some lists which may seem to be boring until you stop and you think about them. And when you do, you find that they really are kind of exciting. The list we're going to look at today, you, you probably wouldn't think it was boring because it, it's about God. And so you just wouldn't think that could be boring. But you just might, when you were reading the scriptures, you just might read right over it and not really pay any real attention to it. But that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a list, and that list is about God. And we're going to try to spend a little bit of time together considering that list and see what it has to teach us. So I want you to join me, if you would, please. And uh, once again, the book of Revelation, chapter 7, back in chapter 7, once again. We're going to be considering verses 11 and 12 mostly as we turn there again today. And uh, if you don't have your Bible, you can see it at least on one side of the of me, if not on the other one. Anyway, last week we looked at Revelation chapter 7 as a whole, and we saw that it answered the question, who can withstand the wrath of God? And there are two groups which go through the wrath without being touched by it. There there's first the nation of Israel, and it's sealed by God's seal, which protects it from God's wrath. And that sealing occurs before the Great Tribulation begins. And the second one is anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we meet these people in a vision that John has that uh, occurs after the revelation, or these people are gathered after the revelation, and it really includes people from all over the world. These are the redeemed and those who have, as the old hymn said, been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And what I want to do uh, today is spend some time looking at how heaven views that redemption. Now, verse 9 will set the scene for us. And we read there, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude 
that no one could count from every nation and tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, it doesn't tell us there in verse 9, but it does in verse 14 just who these people are that John sees in his vision. And we start with a second sentence there. It says, and he said, these that we see here, this great multitude, are those who have come out of the great tribulation. So this great, tribu- this great multitude that's pictured here that no one can ha- count had faith in Jesus Christ during that great tribulation, and they came through it, however they did whether it was as martyrs or they just managed to live through it, they came through it. And they are specifically here the end-time saints, but they represent all of God's people throughout time. So they're there before the throne of God, which is really the most honored position that you can have in heaven. And we're told that they're wearing white robes and which are symbolic of the righteousness that they receive from Jesus Christ. And, and they're holding palm branches, which, are, which are, are, again, symbolic of the victory that is ours because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So there's this great multitude that no one can count from every corner of our globe stand before God in the most honored place, victorious and righteous because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for them on that cross. And then verse 10 tells us, it gives us just this brief glimpse of what was in their hearts at that moment as they stood there before the throne and they were exultant over it and they cried out in a loud voice, it says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So they were saved but they were saved by God and by what the Lamb had done for them, and they were giving the glory and the credit for it to God. And all of that that we've just talked about, which we looked at last week, really sets a stage for what happens next. And what happens next is this. Heaven praises God because of what he has done for us and for all people. You see, it's not just humankind that is in awe of what God has done for us. The angels, uh, too, uh, are in awe of it. As we're told in First Peter, even the angels long to look into these things. And as Luke tells us, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angel over one sinner who repents. And verse 11 describes for us the the intensity of that worship there before the throne. It says this, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Overcome by the wonder of what God has done, they prostrate themselves before God. Now let me... Let me get this picture clear in our minds. In the center, we see the Trinity. There is God the Father, and he's on the throne, and the Lamb shares that throne with him. And although the Spirit isn't specifically mentioned here, we recall from chapter 4 that he, too, is there. And around the throne are the redeemed, those for whom Christ died. And then we have the four living creatures around them, and then the 24 elders, and then around them are all of God's 
angels. And, and they, the ones who fell on their faces in worship, must mean all of them. The redeemed, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and all of the angels were overcome by the wonder of what God had done for the redeemed, and they worshipped him. And verse 12 tells us what they said as they worshipped God, which is what we want to look at more closely this morning. I'm going to begin simply by reading it to you. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. At that moment, before the throne of God, those words, those thoughts or what was in the hearts of all of those in God's heaven. You know, there is a principle in Scripture, which Jesus himself taught us, that what is in the heart will come out of the mouth, and so it is here. And they begin with that word, Amen. You know, that Hebrew word, Amen, simply means, so be it. While the Greek word amen means a strong affirmation of what is declared. It means truly or indeed or that really is true. And that word amen generally has two purposes in the scripture. First, it, it expresses agreement. And secondly, it calls for agreement. And we see that all the time. Uh, you know, somewhere you might be in a Bible study, a prayer meeting on Tuesday night, and someone prays, and they pray out loud, and they, and they get to the end of that prayer, and they say that word, Amen. And, and, and what it means is, so be it. Let it be true. It is true. And it calls for agreement on the part of other people. And, and then many people speak up, and they they say that same word. They say, Amen. And they're agreeing to what has just been prayed. And that it should be so. And that it is so. And so in this setting, what's happening in the redeemed say, Amen, after they have stated the fact that they are where they are in heaven before the throne of God, all because of what God himself has done for them. And the rest of heaven says amen to express their agreement with the redeemed. So after that agreement, all of heaven joins in extolling the greatness of our God. And they do so by declaring seven of his qualities. Now seven is, as you all know by now, because we've mentioned it many times, is a perfect number. And so these seven qualities here really represent all of the other things that could be said about God. They kind of stand in place of everything else that can be said. There's just a really wonderful old gospel song. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but, but it says that if all of the oceans were ink and all of the sky a scroll, if every blade of grass was a pen, and every person a scribe by trade, there would not be enough ink or paper or pens or scribes to declare the praises of God. The seven things that we see here are merely representative 
of everything that could be said. But they illustrate well for us the heart of heaven as it was gathered around that throne that day or as it will be gathered around the throne. Each of those seven qualities is preceded by the article in the Greek language. Of course, we don't see that in the English. Uh, And in that language, it flows very well. But in our English, it sounds maybe a little bit stilted. This is what it would sound like. Amen. The praise and the glory and the wisdom and the thanks and the honor and the power and the strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And you see, the reason that the article is important is it tells us something about these qualities. They are, each of them, the reality or the essence when they are applied to the living God. You see, any other praise or glory or honor or whatever it might be are merely derivatives of that original and as such are simply a faint reflection of it. So you can imagine yourself being underground in a cave made of ice and in front of the doorway of the cave is this tunnel that leads up to the surface at an angle and at 2 p.m. in the day the sun is shining directly down that tunnel. And at the end, there's a mirror placed there at a 45-degree angle, and the rays of the sun hit that, and they reflect and come into that room where you are, and you would feel some of that warmth. But not like you would feel if you walked out of that room and up that tunnel out into the sun Itself, You see, all of these things that are said about God here can be said about others, but not in the same way and not in the same degree as when they are applied to the living God. That's why it's the honor, the praise, the power, the thanks. Now, there's two more things to be noted about these qualities before we go on. You see, they belong to God forever. He is worthy of them, and he's the a source of eternal praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength, or as the text says, to our God, may they be forever and ever. See, he does not change. And what he is at that moment, when those words are going to be spoken, he will always be and always has been. And while all these attributes belong to God, There are some which are simply offered to God and which come from other beings and others which we can add nothing to but which just arise out of God himself and and some that belong to God and yet in some manner we can contribute to them. So wisdom and power and strength are things that God possesses which, which we can add nothing to. And honor and glory are things that we can offer to God, and yet he already possesses them, and we simply in some way add to them. And then praise and thanks are things which we offer to God. They come from us or they come from other beings. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start uh, by looking at those things which God possesses, which we can add nothing to. We're going to begin with wisdom. You know, wisdom is often defined when it comes to people in its relationship to knowledge, right? And as such, it's the ability to take what is known and use it in the right way in a given situation. 
So we may know a lot of facts, but we're wise only if we know how to employ those facts for our own advantage or the advantage of other people. So we've all known people who were uh, really smart, right, book learning, and they didn't have any common sense. So when it comes to God, however, there's really no division between what he knows, and he knows everything. We call that omniscience. There's no division between what he knows and, and how he uses that knowledge. He always makes the right decisions. He always makes the right choices. Everything that he does is wise. And we can't add anything at all to that. As Paul says in Romans, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And the answer is, of course, no one. I mean, we can praise God for his wisdom, but we cannot add anything to it. And heaven recognizes the wisdom of God. They're overcome in their worship for him, and they make that statement. And mentioning it here, it tells us something that we might not have never thought about uh, on our own, and that is, is not only was God gracious to us and merciful to us in saving us, but he was also wise. Now, I don't think we would have ever seen that correlation. Not only did God know how to save us, but he knew he would sin, and he knew what he would do to save us, and he knew what he would do to fulfill his plan for us, for those who were made in his image. And God is wise beyond measure. And we can't add a thing to that. He's also powerful and he's strong, or as the text says, to, be, to God be the power and the strength. Now we're going to take those two attributes of God together because for us mere humans that we are, they really kind of explain one another. Now some commentators will tell you um, they think that this is simply repetition uh, on, on the part of John, they, they don't think there's any real difference between them. They think that John is just kind of multiplying words. And there's really nothing wrong with that idea of repetition. I mean, the writers of Scripture use it all the time. And when they use it, it, it it's used so it intensifies thought or expands that thought or it adds information to it. And yet, even though rete- repetition is a legitimate and, and good thing to do, I don't think that's what's going on here. You see, there are two other words in here that, that could be repetition, and yet the very fact that these words are representative for everything that could be said about God, it, it points away from mere repetition. And there's simply nothing else in the text that would suggest it. So how how do we understand this idea of power and strength? Well, we're going to begin by saying that power, and this is where we begin, applies to the physical realm while strength is seen in character. So we've all known people who are physically powerful and who have no real character. You know, the recent case of Aaron Hernandez is just such as an example. Here, here we have an NFL star who will spend the rest of his life in prison for murder. I mean, he was powerful, but he, he lacked the character that it took to live as he should off the field. And then there's those like the Minnesota Vikings uh, wide receiver, Greg Jennings, who, who says that his faith and his wife's faith is what keeps their family rooted in the midst of the busyness of a professional football career. You see, that 
man not only has power, he has strength. And so we see this distinction between physical strength and strength of character. And we're going to expand our thinking a little bit now. You see, because we can recognize that there are some people that could be very weak physically, and yet they could wield great power through things like wealth or politics. And, and so all of us in this room could think of politicians whom we think use their power appropriately and others who do not. And we can also think of someone like Mother Teresa who, who became powerful in our world, and there's no doubt that she had a great influence in, in our globe, all around our world, because of the strength of her character. You see, we understand that there are many times that for us the right thing, doing the right thing, takes strength of character. And, and I think all of that can help us understand when we turn to God that he is powerful that is there is nothing he cannot do and we refer to that as omnipotence but he always uses his power appropriately that is he is always good and always does what is right and so god is powerful in the physical spiritual emotional psychological realms in any and every other sphere that you can think of and his goodness always determines how he uses power, and that's for good. You see, power belongs to him, and strength belongs to him, and we can add nothing to them. Whatever power and strength we might have is just a faint reflection of what God possesses. So, wisdom and power strength they belong to god and we can add nothing to them at all now what i'm going to do is turn to those things which god possesses which we can um, in some manner add to and that is glory and honor and again glory and honor are the other two set of words or the other two words that could be viewed as a repetition which for reasons already mentioned i don't think they are and again as with power and strength we're going to take those two words together for they help explain one another and we will begin by thinking of them as they might apply to people and then we'll see how they apply to god so we may be able to understand something about glory by thinking about beauty <laughs> So when, when a woman is beautiful or a man is handsome, we simply see it. We come across it and we know that it is, right? So when we think about honor, though, we, we, we see that also in the things that someone does. And we recognize that, too. So when it comes to people, those two things don't always coincide, do they? For example... And we all know it. There are actors and actresses that are beautiful or handsome. They are nice to look at. But, well, you wouldn't want your son or your daughter dating them. You see, they're not honorable in the way they live. Everything is always about them. And everyone else comes second. And then there are people who, as the old soul goes, have faces made for radio. <laughs> but whom you and I would trust with our most treasured possessions. They are honorable people who act out of honor which is in them in things like putting other people first or lifting up those who are 
bowed down. And if we had to be one or the other, if we had to make that choice, then to be honorable is the one that you would choose. And something happens, you know. Something happens when someone acts in honor. And if you've been around any time at all like I have, you've seen it. Those people who act in honor begin to become more attractive. Their smiles are brighter. Their eyes are clear. And those who have no honor begin to grow ugly. And their faces get distorted. Of course, there are people like my wife, more beautiful than any actress, who really tries to live out her faith. She is honorable as well as beautiful, and there are people like that. And we can think of God in those terms. We can think of God's glory as being and honor as doing. God is glorious, and he Act honorably. Even though those things aren't always united in people, they're always united in the person of God, they they aren't in people, and and they, they can be separated one apart from the other, which means they are not the same thing. And understanding that helps us to understand those things better when we look at our God. Glory and honor belong to God. He has them. They belong to him by right. And indeed, they shine out of him like light out of the sun. And they are his whether anyone acknowledges it or not. You know, someone once said a long time ago, it is better that the sun should shine than anyone should know it. And it is better that God is than any should acknowledge it. But we can You see, we can not only acknowledge God's glory and honor, but we can, in some sense, add to them. The Bible tells us that we ought to honor and glorify God. Now, yeah, how is that possible? I mean, aren't the things, these things we're talking about, like God's other attributes, aren't they infinite? And the answer is yes. And I'm so disappointed Brad Martin isn't here today, but I have another mathematician, and he'll set me straight after the service. But I don't know how they'll think about this, but, but you see, you can always add to infinity, but you can never take away from it. So you can add to God's glory. You can add to God's honor, but you can never subtract from it. Wisdom and power and strength belong to God and we can add nothing to them. And we see that and we understand it almost as an axiom. Glory and honor belong to God, but even though they're infinite, we can in some manner add to them. And finally, we're going to briefly consider those things which we simply offer to God. First, we can offer praise to God. Because of who God is, he deserves praise. And if we don't give it to him, others might. The rocks might even call out. But he doesn't have what we offer if we don't offer it. Now, I want to give you a definition that I find helpful when it comes to thinking about praise. Praise is speaking the truth about God to God and to others. Speaking the truth about God always exalts him and his goodness and his character. 
Praising God doesn't just mean saying those words, praise God. I mean, it can, but often when we hear those words, it simply is a kind of mindless chatter that really almost borders on irreverence because it is a vain or empty use of God's name. I have to tell you, it's not my desire to be judgmental and condemning, and the scriptures themselves use those words, but most of us have felt uncomfortable as opposed to lifted up when we meet someone for whom those words seem to be kind of an oral punctuation. You know, if those words work for you, and you really are praising God when you say them, then by all means use them and use them as often as you wish. I have met one person in my life who, who said those words, praise God, and he said them a lot. And when he said them, I really felt like it was praise because I think in his lips it really was praise. For me, it's been helpful to be more specific. For example, I might say to God that he's so big that he can hear all of the prayers of all the people on the earth who are praying at any one time as though he's the only person praying. That's praise. I can say God loves me and is merciful to me. That's praise. I can say it to God. I I can say it to other people. And I think for most of us, that kind of praise is really more meaningful than just uh, repeating a couple of words. Just as kids need encouraging words, but they need real words that apply to them, not the mindless kind of drivel that so often passes for praise in today's society. You know, things like, you're the greatest, or you can do anything. And kids know they can't do anything. And the thoughtful ones want to know, greatest of what? If you really want to praise God, and put your mind and your heart into it and speak the truth about God. And you can, again, speak it to God himself or you can tell others, both of which are, are, are genuine praise to our God. So... Praise God. Finally, and very briefly, like praise, thanks is something that we can offer to God because he deserves it. And I think we understand this well enough. I'm just not sure we do it enough. At least I don't think I do. But it is something we can learn to do better. Ann and I have been praying uh, 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 for something that's really important to us, uh, something in the material realm for almost two years now. And last week our prayers were answered, and I was so happy. And the few people that know about the situation and I've talked to about it, I've told them how happy I was, and I said it many times, and it dawned on me. And I had prayed for almost two years. And I was happy because God had answered my prayers, and I hadn't thanked him. (laughs) How could that be? And so I did right then. And I have done so many times since then. You know, it really is an awful lot you can thank God for. And I think the thing that helps us is to give thanks for things that are real to us, not simply empty words. It's when we see that God has done something that applies to us. For example, I I often thank God for his creation, especially when I see the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset or maybe a... I mean, you lived in Colorado, we drive up the mountains, you know. 
I, I can't see how that applies to me. And of course, if you, if you think about it, you can multiply reasons for giving thanks to God for his creation. And that's really one of the nice things about giving thanks. It, it broadens your thoughts and your awareness. Now, there's a corollary uh, to that, however, and sometimes we don't see the beauty of something or understand its goodness until we learn to thank God for it. And that really is a, le- a lesson for another day, but I mention it now because you need to be aware of it. The central theme of our thanksgiving to God is what he has done for us on the cross. Jesus died that we might live. We were lost and we were undone without God's intervention. And we owe him, quite simply, everything. How can we ever tire of giving thanks to God for that? He deserves our praise. He deserves our thanks. And if we don't give it to him, others will. But he doesn't have what we should give. You know, in, in the hearts of the redeemed and all the angels and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, these seven things poured out representing our deepest thoughts about God and all that he has done for humankind. They speak of the things that God, uh, which we can add nothing to, his wisdom, his strength, his power. They tell us of those things that belong to God in which we can add something, his glory and his honor. And it tells us of those things that belong to God, but which he does not have, at least not all of it, if we, not get, if we don't give it to him. And at the end of all of that, At the end of that, after heaven pours out its heart in worship to the living God, they close with the word, Amen. They declare, so be it. It is so. And they, by their example, and by that word, invite us to join them. It all belongs to God. He deserves it. It's his. He invites us to be a part of it. As the shorter catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And my question is, What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? He's there for you always. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for this list. We thank you, Lord, that it's more than just a list. We thank you that... um, It tells us something of the heart of heaven as we will be overcome in our worship of you. Everything that we in this room have, it all came from you. Thank you. 
to you be all the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.